the most important thing was career. So we did that for quite a few years. But uh, my wife had told me when we were dating, she said, I just want to tell you up front that I've been praying for a husband that is missions-oriented. So, of course, when you want the girl, you say yes to most of the things, right? <laughs> so I said, yeah, we'll, we'll pray about it. We'll consider it. Uh, well, fast forward, after eight years of being focused on the career, uh, the Lord called both of us to missions. So we switched from full-time business, part-time ministry to full-time ministry and probably part-time business, as I'm sure that God will not just wipe away some years that we spent learning about uh, business and all that. So here we are uh, in Kentucky. Uh, I never dreamed in my life that I would, I would be able to visit the state that gave us KFC. Uh, we love KFC back home. Uh, even though after we got here, I think it, it took us three years to actually go inside the KFC restaurant and eat, <laughs> which was kind of funny to me. Um, the Lord has, has worked in our lives through so many people, and we've just experienced him in ways we have not until we came here. For me, hearing sermons and testimonies about how somebody had to pay their rent and they, they weren't sure how they were going to pay for their rent, and then the last day they found an envelope that didn't have a name on it with the exact amount that they needed for the rent, those were just stories for me. Uh, since we've come here, that has happened over and over again to us. And just by the fact that we're in the U.S., uh, we've seen God at work uh, in our lives. And if, and this is, this is a confession, it's, it's a, a weakness I see in, in my flesh. If I said, I believe there is a God, and I also believe in circumstance, Today, that small part of belief in circumstances is completely out of the way. Uh, I fully believe that it's God who is directing every single detail. And we especially see that when there are good things happening to us. We also have to consider and understand and believe that it's the same even when it's not right. When things are not going as we would like them to go. It's still God. It's not like God is sending the bad things in our lives. But as Paul says in Romans 5, those things, affliction, suffering, work in us endurance. And God wants to see us stronger out of each bad thing that comes in our lives. We, Lord willing, we will be finishing up in a few weeks and then after graduation in uh, early May, uh, as an international student, I'm, I'm allowed to work for up to one year in the U.S. And we do have uh, one or two options right now that we're considering. Uh, but our heart is to go back to Romania. And uh, over there, before coming here, we had um, served with a Christian campground. Uh, we've been working with, with uh, an area in the rural side of Romania, northern Romania, where we've, we've mainly worked with kids from, from the area. We, we usually had anywhere between one to 200 kids uh, almost every day <laughs> for the whole season. Um, we had teams come over from the U.S. on short-term uh, mission trips for a week or 10 days, and we would reach out to the local community. Uh, and this is just as a side note, Romania's population is supposedly Christian, uh, like 98% is Christian. But out of that, that 98%, 86%, or closer to 90, uh, I would call nominal Christianity. Uh, as in, people are basically born into being a Christian. Uh, there's no belief. There's belief just because everybody else believes around you. And if you dare to say different uh, you're chastised in your community. So we believe that Romania needs 
workers, and more than workers, Romania needs God, uh, which is why we want to go back and continue to witness and try and show Romanians that they think they know God. They don't live uh, their faith in God. So we'll be working at this camp. Hopefully, uh, everything will go uh, smooth to where we will actually take over. And our plans are to expand what's, what's going on right now at the camp. Uh, as a couple, we, we feel called to work with other couples. We've seen it as a need in the church uh, in Romania. Um, families are part of the church. And we feel like uh, if you don't have strong families in the church, the church might not be that strong uh, in the end. Uh, unfortunately, if you look around, family, the family, the concept of family is under attack, uh, has been under attack. And it seems like this attack is just increasing in, in uh, strength, and it's coming from all sides. Uh, fortunately, back home, it's not as bad yet as over here. Uh, where you don't even know what family looks like anymore. Uh, we're praying that God would, uh, would use people, even weak people like, like my wife and I, to strengthen families that would go back to their churches and strengthen their, their churches in turn. Uh, thank you so much for allowing me to be here this morning. I, I, when Caleb asked me, uh, I, te- I said yes immediately because uh, I want to learn and grow uh, as much as I can. And even being here to this morning is, is uh, part of that in my life. I hope you'd, you'll be encouraged by, uh, by what I have prepared for you uh, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Because I don't want to be here talking something that I, I want to talk in front of you. I hope that God's word would encourage and build us up this morning. So I'll 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 turn to the word now if if that is okay with you all. And before I actually read the text I will need your help. They say that there was a man who was uh, doing all kinds of stunts. And at one point, he let the media know, his friends, his neighbors, told everybody, hey, tell everybody you know that I'll be trying to do this. And the thing that he wanted to do was to go at a cliff, a huge cliff, and on a wire that was stretched over the cliff, he would attempt to walk from one side to the other on the wire. So, of course, everybody was like, yeah, I want to see this. I want to be there. So the big day came. Everybody was there. The cameras were were on. Kids were screaming in in excitement. Adults were waiting uh, to see if this was going to actually happen. So the man, before starting to walk on the other side, to the other side on the wire, He looked at the crowd and he said, do you believe I can go over this wire to the other side? So what do you think the crowd answered? The crowd said no. (laughs) Yes, the crowd said no. So what did the man do? Started walking on the wire and he reached the other side. Of course, everybody was amazed. They had never seen somebody do that before. Well, now on the other side, the man had previously prepared a bike. So he got the bike up. He looked like he was going to do something with the bike. And he asked the crowd again, you see me with this bike here? You saw me crossing. Do you believe that I can go back to the side I left just a few minutes ago on the bike? What do you think the crowd said? Tricky. (laughs) The crowd said no. So what did he do? He got on the bike and he rode on the wire back to the side that he left previously. 
Now he did the third thing. He had the bike. The crowd had seen him walk and then ride back. He looked at the crowd again, and he said, Do you believe that I can go again on the wire, on the bike, blindfolded? Guess what the crowd said? The crowd said, yes. And then the man said, who's going to hop on the bike with me? (laughs) Well, this leads us to our text. And uh, if you would, please stand as we honor God's word while we read it. And I'll be reading from Matthew 14. And this is, this is a passage that you probably know very well. It's the passage where we read about Jesus and Peter walking on water. Matthew 14, and I'll, I'll read verses 22 through 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart! It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sing, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that once again this morning you have allowed us to be Worshipping your name together as your body. We praise you. We praise you that we can stand today and we recognize and confess that we are weak vessels. Still, you use these weak vessels and you take pride in us being here and worshipping you together. Thank you for your word. And as always, I thank you that whenever we look into your word, you are quick to talk to our hearts. This morning I pray that we not only listen to your word, not only read it, but as we do these things, we let it speak to our hearts and later uh, be seen in our lives as we walk out the door. And I do pray for each and every one that's here this morning or that's listening, that we focus on the other six days that are, we are outside of this building. In here, it's so easy to smile and to act. But what really matters is how we, bri- we, we brightly shine outside of the church walls. Because that's where all the people that are lost live. And those that you've placed around us. May you help us shine your light to them. And may many people turn to you even by working through us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm sure you've, you've read this passage over and over again. You've heard uh, people talk about the passage, a lot of sermons. So if you have heard many of these things, maybe all the things that I'm about to say, Like Paul, I'll say it's easy to me (laughs) to repeat all these things, and I hope it's useful to you. Before the actual passage, just a a quick intro, 
if if you'll read home what what's going on in in just a few two or three four past, uh, chapters before chapter 14 you will see that we see Jesus teaching the disciples and the crowds several parables and i'll mention just a few of them you have the parable of the sower the parable of the weeds the parable of the mustard seed the parable of the leaven the parable of the hidden treasure the parable about pearl of great value. And if you read these parables, you'll see how all of them speak about one thing, faith. All of them speak about faith. And then right before the passage, there's another huge thing that's, that's taking place. We read about Jesus feeding how many people? 5,000. That's what the text says. Commentators say, since we are told that it was men, there are people who think that there were there anywhere between fifteen to 20,000 people. Jesus fed anywhere between fifteen to 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. So you have parables about faith, and then you have things like this. Jesus feeding 15, at least 15,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. You have, in a way, theory about faith. Jesus teaching through parables. And then you have practical faith, where Jesus shows that he's not just talk. He's doing these things in front of the crowds and in front of his disciples. So you look at these things. And you're like, okay, so it, it seems re- relatively easy. Somebody that's close to Jesus, somebody that follows him, ought to look at these things and say, yeah, Jesus, I understand what you're saying. You're, you're teaching me about how I, I ought to have faith in God, and I ought to believe that you are God and that you came on earth to save us. And then I see what you're doing, so that equals... Like to, to something like, if I believe in you, I will be able to do great things like you're doing. Is this what we just read about in Matthew 14? Let's go ahead and, and analyze the verses. The first point I want to make is that disciples, the disciples are seeing and are not believing. They are seeing things. And they are not believing, despite Jesus having been uh, teaching about faith and showing them what can be done through faith. Verse 22 says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. We're told he made the disciples get into the boat. He made them. So if you look at the word itself, made, it suggests that Jesus had some work to do on convincing them to get into the boat. It suggests persuasion on on Jesus' side. He had to convince them, to make them get inside the boat. In other words, the disciples weren't ready to leave. And and it, it kind of tells us that they didn't want to leave. Why did Jesus want to send them first? Jesus tells us, while he dismissed the crowds. So he basically wanted the disciples to go ahead of him while he probably shaked everybody's hand. So I always say this. Um, you know how, how usually after the church service, there's somebody at the door shaking hands and thanking everybody for being here uh, for the service. Jesus probably needed a lot of time to shake hands and let, dismiss the crowds, uh, let everybody back home. And Jesus probably told the disciples, Hey, guys, you can go ahead and and go, and I'll join you shortly. And the disciples probably answered, Oh, sure, Rabbi, Uh, just be careful, do what you have to do, and we'll see you on the other side. Is that what happened? I'm making things up here. No. We're told that he made them 
get inside the boat. They didn't want to go. They didn't want to be away from where he was. The disciples had to be made to go because they, they, they probably asked, how will you be able to do all this by yourself? How will you be able to just organize such a crowd? Remember, fifteen to 20,000 people. But even more importantly, they probably asked him, how exactly are you planning to get to the other side? Because there's just, just one boat here. And you're asking us to get inside the boat and go to the other side where you will meet us. We're taking the only boat that's available. Verse 23 says, And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So it seems that the disciples eventually got inside the boat and they left. And this is where, in verse 23, this is where we see why Jesus wanted the disciples to go and for him to be here, there alone. He went up on the mountain to pray. He didn't want to shake 15,000 hands. He wanted to be there with the Father and spend time with his Father and pray. And we're told when the evening came, he was there alone. Well, that's something that we read about Jesus and something that he's doing quite a lot. Remember after his baptism, he was taken into the wilderness for 40 days, 40 whole days of prayer and fasting. If you read in Mark 6, it's the same passage told from a different perspective. And we're told by Mark that before this event, Jesus had sent disciples in pairs. He sent them two by two to spread the gospel. And right before they, they uh, reached this, this passage that we just read, these two uh, or these pairs of disciples return and they get together with Jesus to talk about what had happened. Jesus wanted to hear what the pairs went through, how they saw, what they saw, who they saw, and so on. But they wanted to retreat to spend time with the Father. Luke 5 16 tells us, but he, Jesus, he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus didn't want to go with the disciples because he wanted to be by himself with the Father and pray. But if we look at the, at the disciples and what, what they were doing, meantime, we read in verse 24, But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, I'll turn back to Mark. In Mark 6, you read the same passage, like I said, from a different perspective. And Mark gives us a few extra details to what's going on. Mark 6, 48 says, And he, Jesus, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Did you catch that? Mark says, and he saw. We're told in Matthew that they are in the boat, and the boat is beaten by the waves. And they think they are away from Jesus, because Jesus told them he made them leave. They didn't want to leave his presence. And now they probably felt alone. They were like, we're here, we're going to die, and he sent us out here. He's not here with us. Yet Mark tells us, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. Remember that. He saw and he sees today. There, there are so many things that could have gone through the disciples' minds. Lord, why do you want us to go on the other side without you? It's so good to be in your presence. We want to stay in, in your presence. We don't want to be alone by ourselves. Well, if we take what Mark says into consideration, we understand today 
that even if or when apparently Jesus is not with us, when we are beaten by the waves, when the wind is against us and we, it's, we feel like we, we're not making headway, he is right there with you and with me today. No matter what storm you or I might be in, and I've heard some of the storms that are going on in a few people's lives from this church this morning or today, Jesus sees, and even though he, it feels like he's not there, he is, because the Bible tells us so. You and I are not alone. Now, I need your help again. Have any of you, has any of you gone on a, sh- on a cruise? Cruises are, are, are fairly popular in the U.S. Well, the reason I'm asking is because sometimes we read the Bible and we can pass over things that we read because we've not experienced things that are similar to what's going on. So the reason I'm asking uh, this question about being on a cruise is just to, to try and see if, you, if you've ever seen water and been on the water and what you felt like being on the water. So I'll just share an example from, from my own life. Right after we got married, uh, even though we didn't afford it, we ended up going to Greece for a week. And in Greece, while in Greece, there's a lot of water around Greece. Uh, we ended up going on a boat out on the sea, and it had been the first time I, I ever walked on a boat. I didn't know if I had I was seasick. I didn't know how, how it was going to go. And if you become sick while on honeymoon, that's not a good impression <laughs> in the first week. But it turns out that I didn't I didn't go through any experience like that. But anyway. We enjoyed the really nice weather while we were on that boat. And it, wasn't, it was nothing near what you, you see uh, on cruise ships, huge ships. This was a big boat, but not the biggest boat. And I remembered about this passage and about, about other passages where we read about water. Because the disciples were fishermen, and you read quite a, a few things about uh, fishing and boats and all that in, in the Bible. The day that we went on the water was with a clear sky. There was not a cloud in the skies. It was sunny. The water seemed calm, or it seemed to me. And with all these perfect conditions, I could see huge, immense chunks of water, as big as this whole room, just move silently from one way to the other. Just, I felt, I realized, I didn't feel, I realized how insignificant I am <laughs> as a human or as a person, where there was nothing that I could do to control all that mess of water. Well, coming back to our text, I don't know if that was a clear picture or not. These are a few men on a wooden boat, not the kind that I was on, or the kind that you would be on if you go on a cruise. This was a wooden boat, Small, that was probably waterproof on the bottom part. There was nothing on top of them to protect them from the wind and the waves that were just pounding on their boat and on, in, in the situation they were in. So they were not in a rosy situation out there. They were beaten by the waves and they, f- they felt the full force of nature of water and wind. They didn't have the best boat. It was just half waterproof. And they surely felt the storm around them. Remember, they heard Jesus' teachings. They They had seen him practicing faith, doing miracles. They were seeing him, and yet not believing him and what he was doing, what he was after. Verse 25 says, And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Verse 26, But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, 
they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. My My first question is, why did Jesus choose to come to them on the water in the fourth watch? That's what the text tells us. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. The fourth watch is between 3 and 6 a.m. So it's pretty dark between 3 and 6 a.m. Why did he choose to come to them during that time of the night? The text doesn't tell us, but I think it adds to the whole experience. It like, like it wasn't enough to be on a wooden boat out in the middle of the sea with no control over what's going on around them, there's something new that pops into the picture where they think they see something that looks like a ghost. Wind and waves against them. This is not just a summer rain. It comes and passes. This is a full-on storm. And you, you can't stop asking yourself, how could anyone, how could Jesus walk on water on such weather? And then you're like, wait, 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 wait. not on such weather. How does anybody even walk on water? We read about somebody walking on water. And we know who can do that. Job 9, verse 8 says, and actually Job is rhetorically asking, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Jesus, God, doesn't just walk on water. He tramples on water. He created the water. And we see so many instances where Jesus calms down storms. Didn't Jesus know the reactions that he would find coming at that fourth watch of the night? Still, the text tells us when the disciples saw him walking on the sea. Not something, even though we're told that they thought they saw a ghost. We're still told that they saw him, a person. Now picture the situation. Adult men. Adult men who were experienced with life and all the hardships of life. At least one of them, possibly several of those men, were professional fishermen. Not just the vacation type of fishermen that goes fishing once per year. They were professional fishermen. All of a sudden, weather and how weather is like is not the main concern anymore. The text tells us that they were terrified and they screamed. They completely lost it. And I, today, could look at the text, read it, and say, way to go, tough guys. You're the man, Peter. Whoever was in the boat with him, you're so brave. You're, You're a great man, courageous and all. It's so tempting to do that. But let's, let's not do that just yet. We are tempted to look at the disciples and say things like that, not only from this passage, but other passages as well. We look at them and we say, you were with Jesus just a few hours ago. You saw him doing things that you've never seen before. You've heard him teach you, and still you fail so bad. What kind of man are you? What kind of disciples are you? How could you fail like that? How easy is it, though, to hold the whole story in our hands? Today, just God allowed us to live in times where we have the whole story. So it's easy to read the story and laugh at the disciples and point fingers at them. And judge them. Hey, how could, you, how could you fail like that? My encouragement to you and to myself this morning is, let's not cast judgment on the disciples. 
as much as I know me, I would probably have done exactly the same, if not worse, than what they did and how they reacted. And now let's go back to Jesus. How did Jesus react after they reacted? Verse 27 says, But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. That's how Jesus responds to the terror that these brave men are feeling in those moments. Had I been there... I probably would have searched my, my pockets to get my phone so I could record their terror and then post it on some social media uh, app just to make fun of them. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus immediately, that's what the text says, immediately acts to their rescue and brings comfort to them, even though comfort goes, uh, comes a little bit later. So this is where the the second point can really be seen. First, I mentioned how the disciples stay with Jesus and they follow him and they are seeing these things, but they are not believing these things. And then the second point would be seeing Jesus and believing. Look at what comes next, verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Right? Seeing and believing. And I'll ask, who is Peter? Right? Peter is one of the disciples. And while reading through the Gospels, you kind of get a a picture about what type of person, what type of man Peter really is. And he seems like he's pretty courageous as a person. In a few times, in a few instances, he's... More than courageous, he's impulsive. Remember in the garden, when when, uh, the guards come and take Jesus away, who's the guy who draws a sword and is ready to fight? It's Peter, right? And he cuts somebody's ear off. And then on the the mount, when Jesus uh, appears and he's... the transfiguration, it's called in, in the Bible. Who is the first person to say something? Because it was that type of situation where you feel like somebody ought to say something. It's Peter, again. And it's almost like the, the author speaks about Peter ironically. Like, yeah, here, here goes Peter again. He had to say something. Uh, it doesn't even really make sense, but Peter says it. It's so good to be here. Let's build a few houses and just stay here. It's so nice. Well, this is Peter. Peter, sometimes impulsive, sometimes courageous, sometimes saying things that nobody would think of. Like in our text, right? Peter, out of all of those present, is the first one to say, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on water. Now, had I been there, I wish I could have seen two things. First thing, the look on the other disciples' faces when they hear Peter asking such a thing. Just what, because, yeah, people react when they hear things. So the look on the other disciples' faces when they hear Peter asking what he asked. They probably went like, Peter, we've been friends. Some of them, I mean, maybe his brother was, was there. We've, I've known you my whole life. I, I have great memories of you, with you. We went through many things together. But right now, right now, something's off. You, you're not quite yourself right now. Uh, maybe you're tired. But I'd like to see a second thing. First, they heard Peter. The second thing I would like to see is the disciples' faces when they saw Peter doing it. Right? Do we agree that it's one thing to talk about some things and it's totally different to actually do those things? And that's where most of us fail when you have to live up 
to your promises and to, to things that you are claiming, their faces, oh, priceless. I would, have, I would have liked to be there. What does Jesus tell Peter? Does he say, Peter, never mind. Just stay there. I'll, I was on my way to the boat anyway. Wait for me over there. No. Jesus says, come. That was easy. What's the next thing Peter does? Verse 29. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. This looks so easy. Jesus just tells Peter, come. He's asking Peter to do something that never had done before, apart from Jesus. And Peter just gets up and does it. Is that how things work? Being a disciple of Jesus today? Is that how we obey God? No thinking, no prayer. What if Peter just said, wait, 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 Jesus, let me sit on my knees right now and and pray before I do this, and and then I'll I'll see what God tells me, and and I'll come out and do that. Don't hear me saying other things that we don't need prayer. We definitely need prayer. I'm just laying questions out there. Was he not thinking about what might happen? Didn't Peter ask himself, okay, uh, I'll go out. What if I start sinking? What if it doesn't work? I know how to swim, but this is a storm. Remember the, the waves, the wind, we're still there. Sure, we're talking about these things in minutes and dozens of minutes. For them, it was just seconds. You, you had no time to ask questions like these. You either listen or you don't listen. It's that simple. But this is just Peter and Jesus. Don't forget the other disciples. Once Peter says things and then he starts doing things, he actually steps over the boat's side on the water. By this time, the disciples are in level three of amazement. They're, They're... I'm surprised that we don't read about any of the disciples trying to hold him back and asking, hey, hey, what are you doing? Don't go out there. For us today, it's that simple. It's not whether Jesus is calling some of us, and especially those in this room. It's that Jesus is calling. He is calling every single person that's here today. You either listen or you don't. You either listen and obey or you don't. What is it that you see as a boat today in your own life? What is your boat today? And by boat, I mean, what is it that gives you some comfort or security. If you think about what happened in this passage, comparing being inside the boat as it was, just half waterproof, small, wooden, like it was nothing on that sea in front of the storm, what seemed to be that that brought them comfort or security was probably better than being outside of the boat, right? That small boat, as it was built, was probably better than what was outside of it. But there are two things of people, two types of people. People who don't step out of the boat. And when you don't step out of the boat, what happens? If you're one of the disciples that were back in the boat, you witness something happening, right? These disciples that stood back in the boat looked at Peter doing something that they had never imagined possible. They had never seen that before. But they saw it. 
What happens if you do step out of the boat? If you step out of the boat, you do those things. You don't see other people doing those things. Now, which of the two categories would you like you, yourself, to be? I always think, and maybe I should just focus on today and enjoy my kids at this age and all that, but I always think about what kind of grandparent I will be. How will I share how God has worked in my life to my grandchildren, if God will bless uh, my kids with children and thus making me a grand, grandfather? I would really want to have my grandchildren on my knees while sitting in a really nice recliner chair and be able to tell them stories about how God worked through me. And this, this doesn't have anything to do with pride. That would just be me telling my grandchildren that I, I believed in God and I, just, I, don't, I didn't just say I believe in God, but I, I showed it through the actions that I, I was part of. I stepped out of the boat and I did those things. Sure, it would be nice to tell them a few stories about friends of mine or other people. Oh, you should have seen that person, how, how God got him out of that situation or how God used him. I'm talking about, I don't know, Billy Graham or, or, or a great man or a great person that you, you think about. It's nice to have those examples. But I think it's immensely better if you could share experiences about God using you directly. So what I'm trying to say is, it's better to be Peter than the ones who, who stood back in the, in the boat. Even though it felt like it's more comfortable and it's more secure to stay inside the boat. Seeing things versus doing things. And I encourage you this morning, get out of whatever is holding you back. Whatever you feel like it's, is comfortable and brings you safety. Just get out of that and believe that God is who he says he is and that he can do what he says he can do. Verse 30, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sing, he cried out, Lord, save me. We're back to Peter. It's not that simple. It's not like you do great things, you get outside of the boat, and you're on top of the world. My question is, how long did Peter walk on water? How long did he get to actually do that incredible thing? How many seconds? I'm sure it wasn't minutes. It was probably a few seconds. How many steps did it take on water? And we're told he was beginning to sink. Again, I ask, did he sink ankle deep? Was it up to his knees, to his waist, to his chest? If you watched movies where there was water involved, I hope it's not just me that's going through that. Did you ever catch yourself holding your breath when somebody is apparently uh, drowning in a movie? It happens to me almost every single time. And I'm not learning from that. I mean, it's just a movie. <laughs> I shouldn't be holding my breath. But it seems like when you're reading things like these, like, okay, okay, what's going to happen next? How, 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 did, how did he do that? How many steps did he do? My point for us today, even though the text doesn't tell us, I wish it told us, because my question is, how long do we wait today until we ask Jesus to save us? It's that simple. How long did Peter wait till he cried out, Lord, save me? Was he ankle deep? Was he knee deep? Was he waist deep? Does it make sense? How long do we wait in our storm when we're beaten by the waves and the wind is clearly against us? How long do we wait until we cry out, Lord, save me? I know for sure that in many of my cases, it was not chest deep. It was probably after I was underwater completely. And that shouldn't be that way. It seems like 
a lot of times we go to God and ask for his help when we have tried everything else. We spoke to people, we uh, tried to arrange things, to put things together, and after everything else fails, we're desperate and we cry out, Lord, save me, exactly like Peter did. And that's why I said earlier, it's so easy to read and judge the disciples when we're doing exactly the right, the, the, the same things, maybe even worse. When did Peter start to sink? And it's in the text. When did Peter start to sink? We're told when he saw the wind. Well, Peter, it was seconds again. But didn't you see the wind? Weren't the waves as big when you asked Jesus to ask you to step out of the boat? Here you are on the water doing what Jesus asked you to do and you being obedient. But then you see the wind as if the wind was not there a few seconds ago. He started to sink when he shifted away his sight from Jesus. He didn't look at Jesus anymore after he was on the on the water, but he looked at the wind and at the waves. So, again, the two types of people, people who step out of the boat and people who stay in the boat, if you're brave and ready to live with God and do great things with God, you're a Peter and you step out of the boat, does that mean that your life will be just rosy and on top of the mountains and victorious all the time? Clearly, it will be not. As soon as he stepped out of the boat and he did the unexpected, his life was not rosy anymore. So you're not better off than those who stood behind in the boat. Like I said, there's no reason to be proud by doing things that seem to be more courageous than others are doing. But still, Jesus is calling each of us to do exactly the same. And this is my, my personal belief that since we declared that we do believe that Jesus came on this earth, that he is God, and that he lived a sinless life, and then he died, and then he rose again, and went back to the Father where he's preparing a place for us, by believing all those things, we are inside the boat. You and I, if you believe those things, we are inside the boat already. But once we are inside the boat where it's comfy, how comfy uh, it can be, Jesus says, don't just feel good in that boat. And don't, don't get me wrong on this. Don't just feel good on the chairs, nice chairs that you have inside the church, where you have AC during the summer and when you have heating during the winter. Don't feel good inside that place with your people. Come out. Get out of there. And despite Peter's shifting sight, from Jesus, verse 31 says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Question number one. How long before Jesus helps Peter? Immediately. That's what the text says. Immediately. Second question. Where was Jesus when he did this? The text tells us, verse 31, reached out his hand. In other words, Jesus was right there. And I'm, I, I'd be looking at Peter in the eye and ask him, you did the unthinkable, you stepped out of the boat, you were the only one doing so, you walked, I don't know how, how long you walked, or how far you walked, and then you stopped doing it when you were... We're told Jesus uh, stretched out his arm. How long is an arm? Is that, I, I don't know, in feet. So you tell me, is that two feet? 
How long is my arm? Peter was a foot and a half away from Jesus. And he chose to look away when he was a foot and a half away from Jesus. I don't know if that makes sense to you. It doesn't make sense to me. But I know it's happening today in my life. And I've seen it happening in so many other believers' lives. We are in a storm. We try every little thing. And then maybe we, we shout out to God. And then we give up when we are at one foot and a half away from receiving deliverance. Jesus immediately reached out his hand. And he was right there at one arm's length to save Peter. Jesus calls you and Jesus calls me. And he wants to, you, to use us beyond our limited perspective. We cannot see everything that he sees. But we have to step out. We have to leave whatever is holding us behind. When you go through a storm, if you are in a storm, remember Peter. Remember that he shifted his sight away from Jesus and then he started to sink. And he would have sunk even more had Jesus not stretched out his arm to reach and grab him. Jesus doesn't look at Peter and say and says, "You coward. You were one foot and a half away from reaching me. You're a coward. You're so weak." No. Jesus says, you of little faith. In our suffering, in our storm, if we feel weak and faithless, Jesus, God, still sees that little faith that we have. Just don't shift your sight from him. Because what's, what happens next? Verse 32. And when they got into the boat, what happens? The wind ceased. Now remember the disciples' faces? We left them at level 3. Where, where, where they saw Peter acting upon what he was claiming. Now level 4 of the disciples' faces is what did just happen? What? What did we just see? Man, I wish I was like Peter. I wish I could have had the courage to say, Lord, if it is you, tell me to step out to come to you. Are we like that? We look at people who walk by faith and trust God, and then after they cross the finish line, we're like, oh, I wish I had done the same thing. I wish I had the same faith as they did. Remember, these are the people who don't step out of the boat. They, they stay in the boat where they think they are secure and comfortable. But what is one immediate reaction that we have when we fail? Well, I know in my case, it's shame. So had I been in the boat, I probably would not have been a Peter, but one of the others who stayed behind. And after having seen Peter walk on the water and Jesus grabbing him and then the wind and the waves just disappearing and being on, on a calm water and Jesus and Peter coming back into the boat, that shame that I would have felt would have driven me close to Jesus? Nope probably to the other end, as far away from him as possible. Even though that boat didn't have too many corners or places to hide. The feeling that I would have had would have been shame to cover myself up after failing to trust my Savior, my Lord. These were his disciples, people that have, had been with him for months, for a long period of time. What are they doing instead? We're told that the, the ones that were in the boat, they go to Jesus. And they say, verse 33, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So whether we sink, like Peter, 
or whether we stay back in the boat, the correct reaction and attitude is always not to run away from Jesus after we failed, but to go back to him and recognize him for who he is. In short, don't forget past victories. Peter could have focused his attention on, I, I failed. I looked at the wind and the waves. Or he could have remembered, I walked on water when I had my, my sight focused on him. Two different perspectives over there. And as I, as I come to a close, I'd like to go to point number three. So we, we, we saw the, the disciples seeing and not believing, and then we saw Peter seeing and believing, and I, I'd, I'd like to challenge ourselves this morning by believing without seeing. Believing without seeing. Psalm 16.8 says this. Psalm 16.8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So I have more questions for for everybody. Where does the text say, where is the Lord? First of all, always before me. Always before me. But then I ask again, where is the Lord? Because it doesn't end there. He's always before me. At my right hand. At my right hand. So what does that mean? That means that I'm looking toward my right side. Because that's where the text says that my, my Lord is. He's at my right hand and I have him always before me. So short, surely this is speaking... Uh, what's the word? Hypothetically, if you want But I think what the text wants to say is when you look at the Lord who's at your right hand, first of all, you don't look behind. You don't look behind and what you left back there. And you don't look at people around you and you say, oh, it's easy for you to step out of the boat. It's easy for you to do all these things. And serve God the way you serve. You don't have the past I have. You, you haven't done all the things I have done. So when you have God at your right hand, you don't look behind. But you, you don't look ahead either. You're not saying, oh, I cannot serve in that ministry. I don't have all the resources that I need. I'm not ready yet. I don't have the equipping that I need. I don't have the knowledge that other people... I don't speak as well. I don't sing as well. You're not looking back and you're not looking ahead either because you have your sight focused on your Lord. Remember that man on the wire in the beginning of the message? When he asked, who of you will hop on with me on the bike as I go over the wire blindfolded? There was somebody that said yes. There was a young boy who said yes. And the young boy went to the man, went on the bike. The man crossed over the wire. Everybody was safe and sound. And of course, after that happened, all the media went to the boy. And everybody was like, how did you do that? How did you trust him to to do just that? You know what the little boy said? That's my dad. Right there. That's my dad. Psalm 16, verse 9. When I have God at my right hand, in front of my eyes all the time, therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Now, do we need, do we want more than that? A glad heart. A whole being that's rejoicing. And a flesh that dwells secure. 
we know who our father is. Bl- uh, riding on a bike over a cliff, blindfolded, is nothing to God. Is nothing to God. To our limited perspective, yes, you see the rocks below. You see all the dangers that could come. To him, it's nothing. Let's trust him. Back home in Romania, the following Sunday after Easter is what they call the Sunday of Thomas. And I, I, I won't go too much into that. I just wanted to mention it. You have sermons about how Thomas doubted. You know how Thomas didn't believe. He said to the other disciples, I will not believe that Jesus is alive until I touch his hands. And I put my, my finger in his wound. Even Thomas, Jesus accepted. So if today, or in our own lives, daily lives, we are not ready to step out of our comfort zones, remember that the correct answer is not to run away from Jesus, but to run to him. Because he will always stretch out his hand to hold us secure. I'll close in prayer. Dear Jesus, please help us always focus on you. And if we step out of the boat or our comfort zone, let us never forget that it's not because of who we are or our own merits we are not better than others. It is not something that we do through our own power, but it is by your power and your mercy that we are able to do that. When we aren't doing great things and when we fail, please help us. Please come in our lives and have us come to you instead of running away from you in shame. We believe that you came to save us and we, we declare that you are our Savior and that we love you. And it is in your pray in your name that we pray amen